Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in the ETF business, and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy, here with my colleague, Lara Krieger. Hello, everyone. Hello, Lara. <laughs> Today, we are going to take stock of global markets with Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Welcome, Christina. Thanks so much for having me, Cynthia. We're excited to talk about global markets. We get so focused on day-to-day on what's going on in the U.S. all the time. Domestic bias really is a thing. So today we're actually going to broaden our horizons and talk a little bit about what's going on around the world. So, Christina, you write a weekly blog that assesses the global macroeconomy. It's called the Weekly Market Compass, which is a must-read if you haven't checked it out out there on the Invesco blog website. And what I think is so cool about your blog is that, you know, it's a to-the-point assessment of global markets, but it's also a colorful view of the world. Just last week, you were quoting Henry James in his description of traditional money-focused Americans versus emotional progressive Europeans when you were talking about the differences in economic stimulus packages each put out there to deal with the pandemic. So... Let's start there. You know, when you, at this juncture, we're six, seven, eight months into this global pandemic, when it comes to how Europe, the European Union, has handled this challenge, uh, how do you size that up against what we've done here? And what does that all mean in terms of investment opportunities right now? So uh, I think that's a great question. And it's, the answer is somewhat nuanced. The United States has provided significant fiscal stimulus thus far. Congress has come together and has provided a few different important stimulus packages thus far, including the CARES Act. Um, But um, we are now at a juncture uh, where it is proving very difficult to get a fourth stimulus package. Now, uh, in the European Union, what we've seen is resistance for a long time to burden sharing. Um, But that was all put aside because I think that Europe recognizes how significant this problem is and that it needs to have stimulus thrown at it. And so we saw the EU come together and really surprise um, by providing a historic package. Uh, Some have called it a a Hamiltonian moment. Hmm. I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can call it that, but it was very impressive. Uh, At the same time, I think the U.S. is in the throes of of, um, a much more significant threat um, where it hasn't been able to tamp down the virus. Yes, we're seeing resurgences in Europe, but nothing near what we've seen in the U.S., And yet um, Congress doesn't seem willing to provide a fourth stimulus package. So that's problematic, given that we need uh, to keep this economy going. And uh, Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, has been very clear um, that it is much easier, even though it's painful to spend the money, it is much easier to provide the stimulus um, that keeps someone in a job and that keeps a business running than it is to try to find a new job for a person or start a new business. So this is a matter of triage. And I think uh, the EU got that. It's a moment when everyone has to come together and throw money at a problem. And the U.S., while it got it for a while, I'm afraid that that mood, that sentiment might be going away, even though um, the crisis is is still uh, huge in the U.S. 
we've become the poster child of what not to do in a pandemic, it seems, uh, from all levels, unfortunately. Absolutely. So uh, stepping outside Europe, we've seen Australia kind of take extreme measures, too. They've they've uh, declared a state of emergency and, and done all these, um, you know, taken all these measures to try and contain an outbreak of what a couple hundred cases in their in their country as well. You know, how, how would you rank their responses uh, on a scale between U.S. and Europe? You know, <laughs> it's like how how are, how's the rest of the world doing outside of us, too? Well, it's really interesting to see that Asian countries, for the most part, have done the best job. And I think a lot of that has to do with experience. Having lived through SARS, mm. having lived through a few other pandemics, they get it. They understand the importance of face masks. They understand um, the importance of contact tracing. And so it's a very, very different situation there. We saw a flare up in Beijing uh, in late May, early June. And that city was on lockdown. Things were shut down very, very quickly. Um, South Korea, similar situation where there was um, a, there were some nightclub exposures in early May. Contact tracing went into high gear. Um, it was, I mean, the efforts have been really impressive. And most recently in Vietnam, um, there was a surge in six cities and provinces in the course of six days recently. Um, a total of 42 infections over a multi-day period. But the Vietnamese government jumped in. Um, they have a strong contact tracing infrastructure. They required tens of thousands of people to uh, report to disease control centers. And um, of course, the numbers tell how effective a country has been. Vietnam has had only one death and 545 cases overall. So vigilance matters. And that's why we're hearing uh, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, tell um, British citizens that they need to be vigilant, that yes, they've tamped it down, but they're in within the UK, but there have been resurgences in other parts of Europe. And, uh, and he's worried about that. And he doesn't want um, uh, Brits to lose their discipline. And that is, uh, it becomes more difficult when you get outside Asia. Um, but other countries have been very effective. Of course, New Zealand, um, at the top of the list in terms of countries um, uh, around the world that have done that have done a great job containing uh, the virus, um, but but so much of it I think has to do with um, having had exposure and experience to to SARS and some other pandemics. So before we we jump into a conversation about China, which we it's a you know the elephant in the room, to talk about just the developed market space. There's a lot of people talking now about this is a time to invest in international stocks. This is a time to really look outside of the U.S. for investment opportunities. But, you know, if I remember correctly, um, after the dot-com, you know, bust, after the financial crisis of 2008, during all those periods, international developed market equities uh, underperformed U.S., so is this time, do you really see an opportunity right now to look at those spaces? Is it a valuation opportunity? Is it a growth opportunity? Um, and does it have any legs relative to what we've seen happen in the past? 
Well, it's definitely a valuation opportunity. Um, the, the valuation disparities between the U.S. And, and other major markets has been significant and has been going on for a number of years now. Uh, so, so there has been that opportunity for a while uh, in terms of valuation. What's the catalyst? I think it is um, greater ability to control the virus um, and also um, just uh, the growth potential that comes along with that greater ability to control the virus. We're seeing PMI data coming out um, in places like China that show that the recovery um, continues. It may be slow, it may be uneven, but it's continuing. And I fear that when we see the data for July and as we move into further into August, what we'll see is a stalling of the U.S. economy. So clearly growth potential um, and growth opportunities outside the U.S. Now, that's not to say there aren't opportunities in the U.S., but I believe uh, as long as we continue to have difficulty controlling the virus, we are going to see um, a disappointing economic data. And until we get some kind of very significant progress towards a vaccine, I would expect the secular growth component of the U.S. stock market um, to be to be um, the, the better performing area of the U.S. stock market because uh, it doesn't depend on economic growth in the near term. So when you're looking for opportunities of uh, investing abroad, um, should you use, you know, response to the coronavirus uh, crisis as a major uh, factor in your investment choices? I mean, we were talking earlier about how China's uh, really been successful in, uh, you know, in, in their their containment of the virus, uh, Vietnam, uh, other places like that. I mean, is it is, is coronavirus response now an investment factor, I guess? Well, it could be. I mean, certainly, if your time horizon is shorter, uh, it, it really does have to be um, part of your calculus mm -hmm. in terms of looking at investment opportunities because this is such, uh, you know, ability to control the virus has a lot to do um, with economic activity. You know, in the first couple of months uh, in which countries were fighting this pandemic, what we saw was um, one's ability to uh, fight the virus um, was negatively correlated with economic activity because countries were shutting down their economies. Um, but now we're in a different phase where um, we're unlikely to see total lockdowns, but um, we are seeing um, very big disparities in contact tracing, very big disparities also in the use of, of simple um, safety protocols like face masks, um, which, which have been able to control the virus without impacting economic activity. And so now um, it's not about, um, it's not about um, lockdowns dictating economic activity. It's about having uh, an infrastructure that enables you to control the virus. And so, yes, I do believe that the ability to control the virus has a lot to do with economic growth. And specifically, more granularly, um, do you see, is the story, at least short term, in the next couple quarters, is it technology, healthcare, and uh, consumer staples, or is there something else there that's worth a check? I do think it's, it's largely technology, healthcare, and consumer staples. There are going to be opportunities. For example, in the U.S., 
um, infrastructure is going to be a very important theme. Uh, and that's why I think we're already seeing a pickup in um, materials performance. Um, both major candidates have infrastructure spending as an important part of their platforms. And I think that that is, a, is an important theme uh, to consider. So, so there's more than beyond just the traditional secular growth components of the market, um, but for different thematic reasons. So not too long ago, you wrote a you wrote a post on your blog about how you believed that U.S. and China trade tensions were going to be the biggest risk to domestic stocks this year. I'm curious, with everything going on, do you still feel that is the case? Well, if I had to go back and rewrite that that um, post, uh, what I would say is I think it's going to be one of the biggest risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't foresee. Um, the resurgence in the virus in the U.S. occurring so soon Um, and probably should have um, because I I think there are a lot of factors that in hindsight we could have seen at play. Um, But at the time, it it, it really did seem as though U.S.-China trade tensions would um, would be the biggest risk. I do think it's still one of the biggest risks. It certainly created an enormous amount of volatility yeah. um, in in really the last uh, year and a half before the pandemic, uh, and and it certainly threatens to do that again. We do have other things to worry about now, and I do believe that the U.S.'s inability to tamp down the virus right now um, suggests that um, uh, you know certainly causes concern about our ability to manage a second wave if it were to come this fall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're also getting a lot more medical information and data um, that I think also informs our view of risks, certainly informs my view of risks. And I was just reading uh, a CDC report that came out on Friday about a camp in, in northern Georgia uh, in late June in which there was a COVID-19 outbreak. And it's really shocking to see um, what happened in the course of just a few days. Every single camper, and there were nearly 600 campers and staff members, were required to have a negative COVID test before coming to the camp. Um, Staffers came first. They were there for a few days before campers came. Uh, The campers arrived, I believe, on June 21st. By the evening of June 23rd, one of the staff members um, got sick. Now, all staff members were required to wear face masks, but none of the campers were required to wear face masks. And the staff member left, but later tested positive. And then they tested about 350 or so of the campers and staff. Uh, 76% were positive for COVID-19. And that it's that kind of study that makes you realize, wow, back to school season could be a super spreader event, for example, that increases your chances of a second wave. So I I will say the more medical information we're getting, um, it it certainly makes makes you realize and makes me realize that there are risks beyond just U.S.-China trade tensions uh, in the near term. Having said all that, there's also a lot of progress on vaccines. Um, We're we're a lot closer than we were a month ago. Um, And I think we're hearing more in the way of consensus among medical experts that we could very well have a vaccine by, by December or January. Then it's just a matter of distributing that vaccine and making sure that people get that vaccine. And that's its own can of worms of uh, problems there. 
Absolutely. Um, certainly, that's another consideration we have to be watching closely. Um, uh, Senator Roy Blunt has already raised issues about it and has asked that the CDC be placed in charge of it. Um, and hopefully that will happen. The CDC has a history um, with distributing vaccines. But we also know that companies are learning from the past. And so um, We've heard from several of the pharmaceutical companies that have said they're already starting to mass produce the vaccines um, in the expectation or in the hope that they will pass their clinical trials. So uh, definitely everything is being done to speed the situation up. It just means that we have so many more data points to follow than we would in a normal um, economic crisis. And, uh, and, you know, looking forward here, I guess the name of the game is going to be volatility because um, we have a lot of political risk, too. It's an election year. We have, you know, the northern states here. Winter is coming next and you can no longer sit outside at a restaurant. So that all those business models are going to have to somehow rethink again if if the virus is still going around. So there's still like a lot of trouble ahead uh, if you're an investor that you have to worry about too. Uh, absolutely. Um, there is so much to factor in. Um, and I, I think that it's very important though for us to separate the economy from the stock market and from you know investing in general because they really have decoupled. That all happened at the end of March um, when the Fed uh, really um, had uh, had what I would call their Mario Draghi moment, where mm. where they essentially <laughs> step in, um, provided an awful lot of monetary policy accommodation, and suggested that they would do whatever it takes, and have and Powell J Powell has done that again and again since then. So uh, so that has created um, a very different environment for asset classes than it has for the economy. Because as we know, monetary policy is a blunt instrument. It's not a surgical tool. Um, it's, it's impacting assets more than it impacts the general economy, which by the way, is what we saw during the global financial crisis as well. Um, so it should come as no surprise this time around. So while we can be worried about the economic outlook in the near term, I, I would say that shouldn't have um, a huge uh role in shaping our views on asset classes doesn't mean that we won't see a lot of volatility. I agree with you completely that that more volatility uh, is very likely um, in, you know, in our future in the near term. But I also believe um, there is a Powell put um, under stocks. Um, we had a Bernanke put uh, in the global financial crisis. And I think um, we have a Powell put now under really all risk assets because of, of what the Fed has done, not just with QE, but with its uh, various facilities. Is there anything in all this conversation, you know, as you watch markets day to day that you think it's either overdone, overemphasized, or, you know, counter to that, something that's been completely overlooked that people are missing as they think about where to go from here from an asset allocation perspective? That's a that's a um, I think an interesting question and one that I would answer by saying that what I don't hear a lot of right now is the importance of diversification and you know some of that is is uh, very much a result of uh, recognition that the Fed has been incredibly accommodative and that tends to be supportive of risk assets certainly that was historically the case in the global financial crisis. But we have to recognize that there are risks 
um, uh, and there is likely to be more volatility, all of which suggests that it makes sense to have um, some asset classes in one's portfolio that have lower correlations. Um, and, and so that to me is a, a very important reason to be well diversified right now. Um, the other thing we don't hear a lot of, um, although maybe most people, uh, you know, it's in the back of their head, is that we are in a, in a world of financial repression that is likely to last for a long time. Yields are very low. Um, if uh, historically, for a lot of of asset classes, um, what I like to do is track where yields are relative to um, history, their range in history, um, as well as their historical average. And it is really, um, I think, breathtaking to to look at where many fixed income asset classes and cash. Uh, is relative to history in terms of yields. Um, it really underscores the need to move out on uh, the risk spectrum when it comes to deriving yield. Um, and, and I think that is, is something that perhaps investors aren't thinking about right now, but need to. And, uh, and it doesn't mean just being in fixed income. I think investors need to rethink their their yield, uh, the yield sleeve of their portfolio. Hmm. Um, certainly, it has to have a, a wide array of, of different fixed income options, like credit, um, like high yield, like convertibles, um, but also uh, muni- munis as well. Um, all offer uh, solid yields. It's good to be well diversified, but dividend paying stocks have, um, you know, continue to offer uh, attractive yields. Um, real estate, REITs offer attractive yields. So I think um, investors need to think outside the box. Traditional fixed income is not going to give them um, the kind of yields they have, you know, they have traditionally seen. And so it's important to be very well diversified in in one's, um, uh, the income sleeve of one's portfolio. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Stage diversified. It's what we're we're always banging. That's one drum we're always banging at ETF.com for sure. Um, well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Christina Hooper, for for joining us and for the great conversation, all the actionable insight. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So for more information on this topic or on any ETF topic or to catch up on our past episodes, please feel free to visit us at ETF.com. And for more information on how to get involved in women in ETFs, you can visit womeninetfs.com. That's all one word. You can write to us with your comments, your questions, your thoughts, your feedback at ETF Working Lunch. Again, all one word at ETF.com. On behalf of myself, Cynthia Murphy, and the rest of the ETF.com team, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next episode.